One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Celeste Ng, author of the novel Everything I Never Told You, which was a New York Times bestseller, a New York Times notable book, and Amazon's number one book of the year, 2014. Ng attended Harvard University and earned an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Her novel, Everything I Never Told You, centers on the Lee family, who live in small-town Ohio in the 1970s. They are a mixed-race family with a Chinese father and an American mother and three children. The story opens with the disappearance of Lydia, the Lee's middle child, who turns up drowned in a local lake. Her death is the impetus for the Lee's unraveling, and the themes deal with race and secrets, culture, and family relationships. Ng is Chinese-American, and we began the interview talking about her last name, which is spelled N-G, and what that was like growing up in school when there was a substitute teacher who had to figure out how to pronounce it. It was one of the few times I think that I was really very acutely conscious of it because most of the time I wasn't thinking about my race. Um, And I think that's the experience I think of a lot of people who are in a minority for whatever reason is that a lot of the time you're just you, you know, you're going about your business. And then there's one moment where you're made to realize how you appear from the outside which is very different from how you feel on the inside. And, you know, teachers who knew me knew how to pronounce my name, and the other kids knew how to pronounce my name, and suddenly this person would come in, and there'd be this long pause. And everyone knew how the roll call went, so they'd be looking at me. And everyone knew that this was a moment where they were going, oh, God, how do I pronounce this name? I don't know what's going on. And so, you know, it was a a moment, I think, in which I sort of had to recognize again, oh, right, you find my last name weird. You've never seen that before. Um, it, it definitely is a very complicated moment to be having from, you know, age six onwards. 
talk to me a little bit about the spark for this novel. Basically, you have in the 70s in Midwestern Ohio town, a family named the Lees. James and Marilyn are the parents, and then they have three children, Nath, Lydia, and Hannah. And Lydia's the middle and the favorite and the center point of the book. And when the book opens, she's disappeared, and the reader comes to learn that she has died. The family starts to unravel, and I'll say that they're an interracial family. James is Chinese, first generation. Marilyn is white. Well, it happened as uh, happens with a lot of my stories when two sort of different ideas kind of collided with each other. Um, One was an anecdote that my husband had told me about when he was a little boy in school. Um, He was maybe eight or so, and he went over to a friend's house, and then he had to come home early because his friend had pushed his own little sister into the pond in their backyard. And so this other kid's parents pulled her out and she was fine, of course, but he was in big trouble. And my, you know, my husband had to go home. And uh, for some reason, this story kind of stuck with me, um, just what that moment must have been like for everybody involved. Why would this little boy, my husband's friend, push his sister into the lake? And then what was going through his mind after she was in the lake and what was going through her mind? And then what was that brother-sister dynamic like after she had been saved? Um, I felt like there must have been such a a weight on this relationship where, you know, the sister could say, you pushed me into the lake when we were kids. Um, I found that really fascinating for some reason. Um, And uh, I've, I've met this friend and he's a perfectly nice person and you know everything's fine but um it that was something there's something about that story that just struck me as very potent and very powerful and that sort of collided with a short story that I was trying to work on during my graduate program where there are two uh children in the family and the mother has gone missing and the children are sort of grappling with their mother's absence and at a certain point those ideas kind of ran into each other um and i realized oh the mother in this family is not present and that has a lot to do with what's happening with this brother and this sister um and then i started to sort of um follow the threads of the story backwards to figure out what was going on with this family and that's sort of where the the novel came from why did you decide to go with these kids that were half asian and half white when I started writing the book, I actually, strange as it sounds, wasn't thinking about their race or their ethnicity at all. Um, they just were these people, and I was writing about them. And an advisor um, in my graduate program asked me and said, you know, what what's the race of these characters? And I said, I don't know. Um, and that sort of cued me into the fact that that might be an important part of their identity, and this family structure sort of started to merge. I wanted to look at a family that was very explicitly placed between two cultures. Um, That's something that I've felt a lot in my own life, being ethnically Chinese, but being born in America, and especially being raised in areas where there weren't very many Asians. I don't speak Cantonese, which is the dialect of Chinese that my family speaks. I don't know a lot of things about Chinese culture that I I feel like I should know. Like, I'm a terrible Chinese cook. Um, But I so I've always felt in some ways like I am in between those two cultures, this sort of traditional sort of white American culture and then the Chinese heritage that I have. And I wanted to look at a family that was split in a similar way, um, but I wanted to make it maybe a little bit more explicit. Um, And the idea of this family that was part Chinese and part white 
really, to me, seemed like it illustrated those things really well, and it brought up a lot of really interesting dynamics that I sort of felt in my own life, even though I'm ethnically fully Chinese. Um, it's also something that I think about a lot because my husband is white and our little boy is half Asian and half white. And so I think a lot about what it's going to be like for him to sort of navigate the world and what the world is going to look like for him. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Celeste Ng, author of the novel Everything I Never Told You. Marilyn and James both put incredible pressure on Lydia Marilyn's is really an academic pressure, and James is really a social pressure to have friends and get along and mix in a way that he never did. And for the mother, she has unrealized dreams of being a doctor, so she puts all this on her kid. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and then just the the nature of, of what are we expecting from our kids. Yeah, I think those are really flip sides of the same uh, the same sort of issue, which is that I think we always like to think that we can give our children a better life than we had. Um, or if we really liked our lives, then we give them the exact same things that we had. And it's, you know, at the same time, it's the idea that we know who our children are going to be and that we can define who they are in relation to who we are, right? You're either you're going to do all the things that I did right, and then you're going to do all the things that I did wrong, but you're going to do them correctly. Um, and so there's this, I think it's really hard as a parent to not have expectations for your children. And it comes out of a really good place. It comes out of wanting them to have the things that you didn't have. And it comes out of wanting to pass on the things that you think are valuable. But the problem is, of course, it all assumes that you know who your child is and that you can control who that is. And that somehow you, what worked for you will work for them. And that's just not always the case. Um, and so I think you're right. It speaks to the larger question of what do we expect out of our children? Um, I mean, this is certainly something that's still happening today. If you look at all the, um, you know, sort of enrichment programs that kids have, um, my son is four now, and so people at schools that we've gone to are saying, oh, I want my child to learn Chinese. I want him to go to this immersion Spanish class. You know, these are parents who don't speak Chinese, don't have any, um, you know, Latino heritage. They don't speak Spanish they wouldn't understand what their child was saying, where they say, you know, I'm really bad at math, and I really wish that my child would be good at math because it's so important and that would help him succeed, so I'm going to make him take Russian math. Um, and so there's this hope that in some ways we can look at our own experience and see all the holes of where we didn't have things and plug those in for our kids and then see all the places where we had extra steps to get up higher and give them those same steps. And it it just doesn't work like that. Um, but it's so hard to resist that feeling that we can do better for our children. It comes from such a good place, but it can be so destructive. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. 
Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. When you were coming up with the character of Lydia and you started with, you know, this image of her, a brother pushing a sister into the lake, which is something that happens to her in the Mm -hmm. story. Who did you want Lydia to be? Because she really is the centerpiece of the novel. Yeah, when I started writing the book, um, surprisingly, everyone else was much clearer to me than Lydia was. Um, She was this sort of cipher to me for a while that I had a clear idea of what everyone else wanted and what sort of their motivations were and what their characters were like. And she was a little bit of a mystery. And so as I started to write the book, um, I wrote a lot of scenes that are not in the book in any form at all now, but that I think helped me figure out who she was. I wrote a lot from her perspective when she was a child and how things would look to her to figure out what things would she notice and then why would those things seem important to her? What were they saying to her? And so that was how I tried to get an idea of who she was. Um, And what I came up with was that um, in fiction, is, you know, because you're a fiction writer, we often talk about how character comes from want, um, how there's something that the character really, really intensely desires, and how what you want in some ways then creates who you are and decides what you're going to do as you try and get whatever it is that you want. And for a long time, it wasn't clear to me what Lydia wanted. Everybody else wanted something. Um, her mother really wanted Lydia to become a doctor and fulfill the dreams that she hadn't been able to fulfill. Her father really wanted her to fit in socially and, you know, be popular in the way he hadn't been able to. Nate really wanted to be seen by his family, and so did Hannah. And Lydia was this sort of absence for a while. And eventually, as I started to write from her perspective, I realized that what she really wanted most of all was to sort of please her parents and to try and efface herself so that she could do what it was that they wanted. Um, And I wanted to sort of, in the novel, look at what might happen to somebody if they were sort of denying their own sort of interests and sense of self to try and please other people. One of the ways in the novel that you showed the desperate pressure that was on Lydia or the desperation she felt from the pressure from her father, that social pressure to have a lot of friends, is she would get on the phone and sit there in front of him and pretend to be talking to friends, but it was really a dial tone. Yeah, it was her way, I think, of trying to make him feel like he was succeeding as a parent, because what he wanted most of all was for her to have friends. And she didn't really have friends she talked to on the phone, and it was easier to fake it. Um, it's funny, I just heard um, this past weekend about this service called, I think, like, My Internet Boyfriend or something like that that's existing now, which is basically a service and an app you can get on your phone for people who aren't dating anyone to get fake texts to pretend that they have a significant other so that their parents will get off their backs. Um, so this is a real thing that's happening, and it uh, um, sort of surprised me to think that, like, this is still an impulse that maybe we have now and that grown people have now, that there's a business out there now that will, you know, try and help them pretend that they've got a social life when they don't really have one. Even with all this pressure on Lydia to maybe be something she isn't, she is a favorite child. And in one sense, that's interesting because Nath does great in school and he's off to the Ivy Leagues. And Hannah just seems a little bit forgotten, but just pleasant and sweet. Mm -hmm. And she gets the brunt of the pressure, but also they, they love her so much. And I'm interested in in this and also the fact that you are not supposed to have 
a favorite child, even though. Yeah, that was part of what led me to um, to to think about this. It led me sort of down this rabbit hole of what does it mean to be the favorite and why does that happen? Um, so I have one sister who's 11 years older than I am, and because we have such a big age gap. We both almost grew up as only children, um, and we had very, very different experiences, even though we had the exact same parents, obviously. Um, When my sister was growing up, my parents were still in grad school. They were living in student housing. Um, You know, they they were in a very different position than they were when I was born, which, you know, they both had graduate degrees, and they had stable jobs, and we had a big house, and, um, and of course, it was a different decade. And so I, in thinking about my childhood... I don't think that my parents had a favorite child, or if they did, they did a really good job of hiding it, because I never saw that between me and my sister. We were always in such different places that I didn't feel that my parents were really comparing us in any way. And when I looked at friends who had more than one sibling, it was sometimes clear to me which one of them was the parent's favorite. I remember talking to a friend when I was much older and out of college, just a coworker, and um, talking to her about her parents, and they had... um, three children, and the parents had a favorite, and um, they knew which one was the favorite, and I just thought, oh, what's that like if you know that you're not the favorite, that your brother or sister is the favorite, and then what's it also like to be the one who has all those expectations and know that you're the one who everybody is looking to, and you're the one that everybody thinks of first, and I really wanted to look at that dynamic because it seemed to me that it's it's something that happens so often, and yet it's something that could be so poisonous in a family. It has to be so hard to not be the favorite and to know who is the favorite. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Celeste Ng, author of the novel Everything I Never Told You. So one of the strong undercurrents of this, of course, is race and with Marilyn being white and James being Chinese, you see early on the pressure, especially from Marilyn's mother, that this is wrong. But when they get married, they just decide kind of not to really look at that ever again. They just don't seem to ever really talk about it. It seems like a tacit agreement that they're just going to move forward, ignoring her mom's scorn and living their lives. But that's something that obviously they have kids they're, they're living in the 70s in um, Ohio. It, it has to come up in their lives. And so you're wondering, especially from Marilyn's point of view, but both, what's simmering maybe under the surface? What resentments? What unanswered questions? And there's one scene when the police come to the door and he's saying to the officers, you know, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And she feels like he's kowtowing. And when this word comes out, it's rife with all of this stereotypes and history and racism. And it sort of unfolds a lot for those two. I'm wondering if you can talk about writing this moment and what you're trying to achieve and and what it meant to you. Yeah, that was a moment that I, um, that argument between the parents, I rewrote a lot of times, and um, it was something that I really wanted to try and get right, the way that two people can hear the exact same conversation in really different ways, and for totally valid reasons. Um, And so I wanted to try and find a word that would sort of act as a hinge for the conversation, or pivot point for the conversation, where the 
tone of the conversation changes, because that happens sometimes if you're having an argument with someone. Oftentimes there's one moment where someone says something and you realize that the tide of the conversation has turned. And that suddenly, you know, there's this very, very palpable tension that maybe wasn't there before. And that word, I think, kowtow, because it's so culturally loaded, um, was the one that I settled on because it had, you know, it has all these sort of ideas. And we're even aware of them now. Um, you know, if you, if you watch Fox News, for example, and they complain like, oh, well, Obama went to go meet this person and he bowed and he bowed too deeply. This is, you know, this is a sign of weakness. Um, all the sort of things that get wrapped up in this idea of servitude and bowing and of power and hierarchy. And for Marilyn, this is just a word that she happened to say. You know, it's, it's, she's not thinking about all the connotations of it. But if you're one of the people who are, you know, if you're Asian in this case, and you've, that's been a word that's been applied to your race in kind of a derogatory way, you can be very sensitive to the nuances of those words in ways that other people aren't. And so that was something that I wanted to try. It's weird to think about an argument hinging on a single word, but I wanted to make that word really the center of the argument and to show how two different people would hear that two really different ways. There's another scene, too, with the police where Marilyn, she felt the police weren't doing enough. And, and she mm -hmm. says, you know, it wouldn't be like this if she was a white girl. Yeah, she says, you know, if, if she was a white girl, she would keep looking. And I think this is one of the things about how we tend to look at race, is that a lot of times we tend to assume that if we don't mention it at all, it's somehow better. Um, and I think that's sort of what's happening in their marriage. They've sort of agreed that they're not going to think about race or they're not going to talk about it. But the thing is, of course, that it's still there in the background and that it is a part of who they are and that they've been ignoring it for so long that when she brings up the fact that Lydia is not white, which of course is true, and they both know it, but they've never talked about it before. Um, the fact that she says it so explicitly takes on a really heavy meaning for James. Um, this feeling that his wife also sees him and their children as being somehow other. Um, that's a, another moment where I think they hear the same thing, and it has very, very different resonances for both of them. Is that something that you think people can come back from? I would like to think so. And I also am a real believer in the power of language, I guess, obviously, because of what I do. But I do think that, that when you talk about things, if you keep talking about them and you keep trying and trying to explain yourself more clearly, I do believe that eventually you can get someone else to understand you. If you think about how I had this conversation with my son a lot, again, because he's four and four-year-olds are not always great at figuring out what other people are thinking or about sharing their own thoughts. And so I said to him, you know, if you have thoughts in your head, how do they get out of your head and into my head? And he didn't know. And I said, well, the only way they can get out of your head is if you say them in words. And then the words come out of your mouth, and they go in my ear, and they go into my head. And then I can understand your thoughts. So that's why we have to use words and, you know, all those things that parents say. But it's really true even for adults, too, that all we have to sort of communicate our thoughts and our feelings and everything really are words. And it's so easy to get those words wrong. But I do believe that if people really sincerely want to communicate, that they can, um, that they can overcome these sort of differences that they talk about. And even something like this argument between... James and Marilyn, this moment where Marilyn says, if she were a white girl, they'd keep looking. And the way that that affects James, I think that eventually, hopefully, if they talk about it, she could understand why he was so upset by this. And he would be able to say to her, this is what I heard you saying. Um, that's something that I say as, you know, someone who's, you know, grown up in the 
90s and the 2000s, and, you know, there's lots of psychobabble that sort of entered our, our um, culture. But I do think that's something that people can come back from, but it's hard. Um, it's, it's hard to overcome the visceral reaction that that kind of conversation can, can have in you. So let's talk about your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I've got here a passage from Annie Dillard's The Writing Life. Um, and this is actually a passage that I have um, up over my desk, and I can tell you a little bit more about that, but I'll read you the passage first. Every morning, you climb several flights of stairs, enter your study, open the French doors, and slide your desk and chair out into the middle of the air. The desk and chair float 30 feet from the ground between the crowns of maple trees. The furniture is in place. You go back for your thermos of coffee. Then, wincing, you step out again through the French doors and sit down on the chair and look over the desktop. You can see clear to the river from here in winter. You pour yourself a cup of coffee. Birds fly under your chair. In spring, when the leaves open in the maple's crowns, your view stops in the treetops just beyond the desk. Yellow warblers hiss and whisper on the high twigs and catch flies. Get to work. Your work is to keep cranking the flywheel that turns the gears that spin the belt in the engine of belief that keeps you and your desk in midair. Um, so I like this quote a lot, um, first just sort of for what it says about writing, that your job is to basically do something that seems impossible, um, to, you know, as she puts it, to keep your desk sort of floating in midair. And the other reason that I like the quote is that it happens to match up very nicely with where I write. Um, I have a little space in my apartment that was built by the previous owner. It's, I think it's technically considered a closet, but it's big enough for my desk and my chair and lots of books. And it has French doors, and it has a window which happens to look out onto maple trees. And so for me, it's kind of nice to have this, um, this quote as a little reminder. And I actually um, made this quote into a, a coded painting, I guess is the best way to describe it, that's hanging above my desk. Um, Every letter, uh, every letter of the alphabet has a different color. So, like T is this blue dot, and then there's a little blotch on the canvas that spells out this word or this this whole passage in colors. Um, and so, it's just a series of blotches on this um, canvas that's hanging above my desk. But I know what it says, and this is it says this quote there. Um, and so, that's a little inspiration that I have over my desk to sort of keep me inspired. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Celeste Ng, author of the novel, Everything I Never Told You. Can you share something you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky to write, something you had to rewrite a lot, something that um, you're happy with. Sure. So I'm going to take advantage of this moment, I think, to read a passage that I was really proud of. Um, It's from towards the end of the book, and I don't think it gives anything um, too important away. It's um, from page 252. And Nath has um, Nath has been having a very hard time at this point in the book, and he's gone out drinking, and he's gotten drunk, and he's actually passed out in the in the seat of his car. And um, this is a passage where I struggled with the point of view a little bit because I wanted to show both how he was perceiving things and what was really happening, and I wanted the reader to be aware of both of those things at the same time. And um, this was a passage that I worked over a lot and um, was a place where I felt like that that came together. Back in Middlewood, Nath does not know how long he lies there, sprawled across the front seat. All he knows is this. 
Someone opens the car door. Someone calls his name. Then a hand grips his shoulder, warm and gentle and strong, and it doesn't let go. To Nath, fighting through a deep and groggy stupor, the voice sounds like his father's, though his father has never spoken his name so softly or touched him with such tenderness. In the moment before he opens his eyes, it is his father. And even when the world comes into focus to reveal hazy sunshine, a police officer, a police cruiser, Officer Fisk crouching beside him in the open car door, it is still true. It is Officer Fisk who peels the empty whiskey bottle from his fingers and helps him lift his head. But in his heart, it is his father who says, with such kindness that Nath begins to cry, Son, it's time to go home. So that was a passage where I wanted the reader to sort of be in two places at once. I wanted the reader to be in Nate's head, but also to be outside of that car and to see the reality of what was happening and then to experience it as Nate was was experiencing it. And um, that was a passage that I was sort of proud of. Well, you shared with us where you write, but do you write by computer or hand? I write by computer most of the time um, because I can get the words down faster. Um, I tend to lose things if I have to write them down by hand because I'm thinking faster than I can write. But if I'm struggling over a scene, sometimes I'll take my notebook outside or I'll go to my favorite cafe or I'll go to the library and I'll work on it by hand. And sometimes the shift in medium helps me figure out the wording. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So when I need a break from writing, um, I really need a break from words. And so I'll do something that involves my hands. So I'll cook something really complicated, or I'll knit, or I'll crochet, or I'll do a collage or something else um, sort of crafty, or I'll go and take a walk. Um, I think getting that space from language tends to get my brain flowing again and give it sort of a real break. And who do you show your work first to to get feedback? I have a few close writer friends who are my first readers. Um, They really get my work, and they know how to give feedback in ways that I can hear. And they're incredibly, unbelievably patient in reading my drafts. Um, I also have a writer's group who are fellow instructors at Grub Street, which is the writing organization where I sometimes teach, who have been a really great sounding board and cheerleading squad and whip-cracking squad for me as well. And how do you deal with rejection? Honestly, chocolate and ice cream, um, whining to writer friends who get what I'm going through, And then after all of that, kind of biting the bullet and sending the piece out again. Um, Rejection definitely stings, but I really do think it's part of the process. And you have to learn what you can from it and then keep going. A A lot of publishing, I think, is really a matter of luck and timing. And what is your favorite word? I thought about this for a long time, and I don't think that I have one. But just before my agent submitted my manuscript to publishers, she pointed out that I started a lot of sentences with and, and maybe I should address that. And so I did a search and find, and it turned out that I had sort of 500-something sentences that way in a 350-page manuscript. So maybe and is actually my favorite word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Celeste Ng, author of the novel Everything I Never Told You. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.